As far as like, how do you know when you've got something real and you should triple double down on it? I think really it does come down to how confident are you in a combination of things that are pushing it? In other words, if you really have lightning in a bottle, you've got something effective. It tends to echo in a few different chambers, not just sort of one thing that's really moving. It's a few. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. I'm your host, Brian Belfour, founder and CEO of Reforge. Today, my regular co-host, Fareed Masafat, is out, but I'm welcoming a guest co-host, Casey Winters. He was the chief product officer at Eventbrite and advisor to some of the fastest growing companies in the Valley, such as Canva and Fair. We're welcoming our guest, Laura Schaefer. She's the VP of Growth at Amplitude. And we cover a couple really meaty topics today. First, the rise and fall of the marketplace cameo. And we dig a little bit into the dynamics of marketplaces, when to scale, what signals to pay attention to, and what not to pay attention to. We then unpack the OpenView SaaS benchmark uh, report for 2023. We talk about the few interesting and kind of concerning trends that we see within that report and what founders and teams should be thinking about. Before we jump into the episode, just a quick announcement that you can go to unsolicitedfeedback.co, sign up for our newsletter where we're dropping exclusive summaries, extra YouTube videos, as well as sneak peek of topics along the way, as well as a bunch of other goodies. So go to unsolicitedfeedback.co and subscribe if you want those things. A quick note about the episode, Casey Winters unfortunately had a fire alarm go off in his building during the episode. We've done most of the editing out of it, but if you hear a little bit of it, just don't pay attention to it. We apologize for the noise, but the rest of the episode is amazing. So pack in and we hope you enjoy it. You're 10 months in at Amplitude, is that right? Yeah. About so I, I feel like you can measure it in like absolute time or like the amount of time it felt layering a self-serve plan into a sales led company. Like either one, you know, five years or ten months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How's it going? Awesome. It's great. All the right challenges, like all the kinds of challenges that I really wanted to dive in and do. Hey, like layering in self-serve into sales led is is not for you unless it's something you really, really, really want to do and push because there are so many kind of hills to climb. But if you're like in adventure mode and you want to do it, it's great. And I totally am. So it's it's been challenging in all the good ways and lots of fun to just get stuff done. That's good. What right. how's the latest the pricing release? That was like one of the latest announcements, like the Yeah. The free, that was free, that yeah, was our self serve okay. plan. Yeah. Yeah, those are big ones. So we launched uh we call Plus almost a month ago to the day, right? So it's our self-serve paid plan. So before it was basically like free, like dip your toe in, figure stuff out. But then if you wanted to pay at that point, you had to talk to sales and, you know, it was like paying, you know, at that point, like five figure something. Like, you know, that's a big jump from paying nothing mm. to paying like oh, 40 I'm, I'm familiar. <laughs> Are you I'm familiar? familiar? <laughs> oh yeah, we went through we went through that uh both HubSpot and Reforge. So yeah, so we've, been through, we've been through that funnel. <laughs> right, so. right. It's like painful. It's like a staircase, right? And it's just gonna like a huge gap. You walk up you know, a couple stairs, and it's like, okay, your next step is after this big giant abyss. Go ahead and make a jump, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you gotta really want it to do it. So all made made all kinds of sense. But obviously, layering in a new plan, it's like a you know. Pricing and packaging is like a symphony, right? It's meant to play well together. And then there's the whole like, what do people want? And people are notoriously bad at predicting what they'll pay for something or how much of something do you need? Well, completely depends on the person, you know? So all of those, like the fuzzy and the concrete challenges, the different opinions and all that stuff stuck with, you know, the old 
hey, look, this is critical for the business. We need to land it. We can shift and adjust. And then also a hypothesis and counter hypothesis framework really worked. Hey, where we disagree instead of like sitting in meetings over and over and trying to like get everyone to align, just recognize we're not going to agree. What's the hypothesis we're going to go with? And we're going to do that. What's the strongest counter hypothesis? Let's pay attention to that. And then the top 10 ones were most divisive on those. We'll just in soft launch, pay attention and see where we land. But yeah, it's the right, it was the right thing. Reception's yeah. been pretty darn good. So we're feeling good. All right, Casey, kick us off. What's going on over in Cameo land? Yeah. So there was a recent article in the New York Times. It's called Cameo to the Moon and Back. I think most people listening are probably familiar with Cameo, but for those who aren't, it's a product where celebrities get paid to make short videos that their fans pay for. You charge by the video and it kind of got big by the quote from the, the CEO in the article is people who are more famous than they are rich. So they have fame. They're interested in ways of monetizing that fame, you know, because maybe they aren't super actively working in Hollywood or professional sports anymore. So this is a company that, you know, I think they raised their series A in like 2018. They're growing by having these people who are somewhat famous produce these videos. These videos get shared, you know, people find them and then, you know, they sign up and they, you know, also uh, book these videos. So they're growing quite nicely. And then the pandemic hits and they go vertical, right? They, they go vertical for a few reasons. First is that more of the supply of celebrities have nothing else to do because no one's working in Hollywood. A lot of people aren't playing professional sports. They have free time and they want to make some money. And also the demand side of the business doesn't really have a whole lot else to spend money on. They already bought their Pelotons, right? So revenue grows to $100 million. And you know some stuff in the article around how the company spent a lot of money on its employees as everyone did. They raised a ton more money. They blitz scaled. You know, they expanded into NFTs. They bought a talent agency, you know, over they time. They bought a talent agency? They, they I, did I, I, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. They did buy a talent agency. And, you know, all of this was in fuel of this growth loop where if the adding new celebrities come in and create videos and that drives new demand, you're consistently trying to find new celebrities that could bring in new demand to drive this growth loop. So there's some stuff in the article about how they tried to get into more and more controversial celebrities. And, you know, essentially it kind of crashed back down to earth. It didn't work long term. While a lot of things were fueled during the pandemic much more quickly than normal, DoorDash and Instacart, Peloton, you know, being other examples, some of those companies were able to take new habits that were fueled by the pandemic and at least transition some of those into, you know, sticky habits beyond the pandemic. I would say Cameo, I was not able to. So I just thought it was a really interesting article I wanted to get. You know, some of your takes on it. I had kind of a lot of thoughts reading through it. And it's a company, you know, that I had met many times during this time period. But I just wanted to kind of see, you know, what's what's your take on this? This is kind of like a lesser discussed pandemic growth company, but a, a kind of a really interesting case study for a lot of different reasons. I've got some thoughts, but I actually want to start with a fun question for you too. <laughs> I was poking around a while ago on Cameo and like looking at people's prices. I'm interested. I'm going to give you five names. And I want you to, no cheating, <laughs> to choose who you think the most expensive and who you think the least expensive on Cameo is. All right. Dennis Rodman, James Vanderbeek, Lindsay Lohan, Kenny G, and Nick Carter. Most expensive, least expensive. Laura, we'll start with you. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and put James Vanderbeek at the top. I just think there's too many like Dawson's Creek fans to like not have had mm. him make some money. And I think he's done some interesting 
cameos in other ways to put into the tub. I'll say Lindsay Lohan, just because I think she's, I think there's a lot of interest around her. As least expensive? Or, or. No, I think I'm going in order, but man, I have have no idea. I'm just, I'm throwing throwing spaghetti out. Uh, I think Dennis Rodman and Kenny G were the other two was my last one. And Nick Carter. Nick Carter. Oh, I think I put Nick Carter at the bottom. I'm going to be totally wrong about that. All right. Yeah, so there you go. That's my rough order. James Vanderbeek at the Casey. Yeah. I don't really remember who Nick Carter is. He was a Backstreet Boy or NSYNC person. One of the boy bands or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that may change things. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, okay. Here's here's my thought process. The people that are actually performing versus talking probably make a premium. So Mm -hmm. I imagine Kenny G is playing his little saxophone. And it actually is a performance, and therefore he can charge a higher rate versus someone like Lindsay Lohan is like, hey, Brian, how's it going? Um, so I was going to put Kenny G at the top, and I would have put Nick Carter at the bottom because I didn't know who it was. But I would then, I guess, put Nick Carter in, in second place because I imagine he sings. He's singing, totally. Right. Then the rest is Dennis Rodman, James Vanderbeek, and Lindsay Lohan. I feel like this is a strategic pricing question. Uh, some people just want to do it a lot. <laughs> of course, Casey like, takes really it to pricing principles down. and, and oh, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think some people are like, hey, this is easy. I'd love to just print these all the time. And then they'll set a very low price, like 50 bucks or something. And some people are like, look, I really don't like this, but like, if you're going to pay me five grand. Sure, I'll, I'll do it. And so I'm trying to think through between the three people left who would take a premium pricing approach because they probably don't like doing it and who might just enjoy doing it. Like I know the guy from the office like doing it and he's like, he was like the highest grossing person because he just would print them out and he probably wasn't working a lot beyond the office. So, okay, I'll actually go Vanderbeek at the bottom, Rodman and Lohan in the middle. I think your performance thing is is spot on. I think we're going to find there at the top because who doesn't want to have someone singing at their birthday or whatever, you know? Right. Okay. The results are in. And I will say, Casey, you are the exact opposite, actually. James Vanderbeek at the top and Kenny G at the bottom. So that, that proves to show that there is no rational thought to cameo pricing. No, no like there I was actually I was actually very surprised by these results too. I would have been on the other side as well as like putting somebody like Kenny G at the top. But hey, you know. Well, I do think a lot of it is like personal preference. Do you want to be doing these all the time or not? Right. Oh, yeah. Kenny G's like, oh, this is easy money. Then he'll just set his price low and do five of them a day. Right. Fans of Dawson's Creek and of James Vanderbeek are like very strong fans. Right. (laughs) There's a personal connection. He's got like a like Instagram situation. I think he's like an interesting person. So people would find it exciting for him to show up whereas like i don't know a ton about nick carter but i don't get that same feeling i think he performed but i don't think he's developing an online persona in that way so there could be something about that kind of connection my knowledge of instagram following of anyone is quite low as yeah there you go we're missing i mean back to the fundamentals like we're just missing you know the market research brian that we would have needed (laughs) to do this if you had just given us warning we could have given you if you had given us instagram follower account along with those names it probably would have helped Mm -hmm. us make a more informed decision i thought that you had something with the performance thing i 
thought that was a really good i'm, I'm surprised it was good, it was good yeah reasoning rational thinking i would probably pay james vanderbeek to like send a crying cameo to you know somebody exactly. in my fantasy league or something like that that would actually be it that yeah now i just gave casey an idea for his fantasy league to, i'm currently to, in last yeah. place so i would be receiving the yeah. crying cameo so, so so am i so am i so next season next season though if cameo is still around which we will i think talk about a little bit all right so my actual thoughts on this is that cameo is one of those that just never made sense to me as a marketplace and the reason is is that it kind of violates some of the patterns and rules around marketplaces specifically low frequency marketplaces so on the demand side i think for the majority of the customer base it is a low frequency behavior and problem i might send it for a holiday or a friend's birthday or something but i'm not going to send it for all my friends birthdays most people aren't going to do that mm -hmm. and so it, it is an infrequent behavior and when you have low frequency on one side of the market or other there typically are other pieces of the puzzle that need to be in place to build a really big sustainable business a couple of them being that usually you need a much higher average selling point than what cameo is you know think of the car marketplaces the real estate marketplaces all of those pieces so that even though it is a low frequency on the demand side you are earning quite a bit of dollars for every transaction that happens on, on the marketplace the second piece is most of these companies need to be at the point of need when the demand side has the problem right and that typically happens through a ton of long tail SEO, right? And that never really got in place either. It's not really like people are searching for, you know, how much would it cost me for James Vanderbeek to send a message to my, like that wasn't there for them. And so their growth being driven by word of mouth uh, is not surprising to me, but it wasn't like very sustainable word of mouth over time in the sense that it was a lever that they could continue to drive and grow and grow. And so it never resonated with me. I think the thing that stands out from what you said, Casey, is I had never thought about how COVID affected the supply side of the marketplace. A lot of the supply side wasn't working during that time. I, I, I had thought about the demand side, but that was a piece that I hadn't put together. So that's my surface level observations and, and takeaways from this piece. And I think a question I'm interested in talking about later is like, is there a path from here for them or not? But Laura, what are your main things? I think that was the key information, just misattribution of growth. Like just the idea that that scenario where people are inherently forced to be disconnected, where folks are not able to work, like those, all their kind of celebrities on their list, like all of those things were temporary pressure cookers that fuel growth. I have a feeling like the folks at that company could have put that together and seen, hey, look, we've got a temporary big surge here going on with interest of that side of my marketplace. Like not only are they bored, but a lot of them need to make money, right? Like contracts being canceled, movies that they had worked, they weren't going out, right? That temper, unless you believe like pandemic would be forever, which it felt like sometimes, you'd know that that's not gonna sustain. And then on the flip side, on your buyers, right? Fewer events happening in person, you gotta think through like what virtually can you do? I, I think I was a part of a virtual like company conference at some point that had some display of like different celebrities kind of like touting a recent launch, right? Like that's the kind of thing that if you're a creative virtual event or you're thinking like, what can I do to make this as exciting as in person? And this kind of thing is gonna be far more appealing in that environment than when everyone's in a 
room together, you know, like you just have fewer options. So I think that companies that did it well looked at it as what it was. Like this is a temporary giant boost in brand awareness and getting people in the door. And then how do we have a very deliberate pivot strategy for when those accelerants go away? And I think companies like Cameo that kind of pitched or assumed that that was going to stay the same ended up in big trouble because not only then did their, I think the folks who were, you know, investing them and working with them kind of have a false impression where it's going, which is, you know, obviously challenged. I think part of why they scaled up and then that crashed, but also then the um, folks aren't focusing on building the right things. Like how do we think of subscription models where like you get like an ongoing random shout from someone in our group every month, you know, things to get the people who have come into your ecosystem a reason to stay post, right? So that to me feels like not only a big miss for them, but something that we're seeing other companies either have done really well or not. And it all came down to like, did they make the pivot strategy before the change was upon them or did they wait for the wave to crash? Yeah, I think you bring up a few good points here. One is the, hey, some of these things, you know, are temporary and you need to be kind of prepared for when they go away, how, how you're going to grow. And, and move into different models. So you talk about like sequence the tailwind you're getting to something that, you know, is more sustainable. And you like, they did know this. Like I first yeah. met this company in 2019 before the pandemic. And, and Brian, I had the same kind of takeaway as you and told them this, which is I'm like, oh, this isn't actually a marketplace. This is a seller distributed transactional platform, what I would call a, a SaaS-like network. There mm. is no demand side retention. And if you want to have a sustainable business, you need to find a way to create that. And they the knew bricks. this, but I think what happened is even without demand side retention, top level GMV was growing so quickly and then went even more vertical during the pandemic For sure, that they were probably getting a lot of advice that like, go seize the opportunity. Because we talk about, as you mentioned, Laura, like, oh, everyone kind of knew these were temporary, you know, growth levers. And I can confidently say at Eventbrite, I knew virtual events was a temporary growth lever and shut down a bigger push toward to make that a permanent business. Because I'm like, it's just not a market in two years. And of course, there were other companies that disagreed with us and raised a bunch of money and they don't look so good right now. But nine out of 10 companies assumed their thing was going to sustain forever. Shopify assumed it was going to sustain forever. DoorDash assumed it was going to sustain forever. Instacart was going to sustain forever. And then they all had to do layoffs on the other side of the pandemic. They all had to have very painful conversations with investors. Like there was so much hopium that this step change (laughs) that they received was going to sustain forever versus kind of go back down to pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, it's hard probably when you're inside those companies to be thinking rationally when you're just trying to keep up with an insane level of demand. And you're like, well, I just need to keep up with the demand, right? So I, I... a receptive to all of that. But I, I, what I will say is it's not like they were blissfully unaware of the issues with their business prior to the pandemic. I'd spent a lot of time in person with them talking through it. They were aware. But what I think is really interesting about this from, you know, a, a bunch of people who work on growth is I would say this was a growth loop, not a company, because they had a classic content loop where someone who is famous records something. It generally gets shared publicly on social media. Other people see that and say, how can I get that? What's more interesting to me than that content loop is that they were the first company I'm aware of. You know, we all all have worked at companies with sales and 
sales is normally a model of cold calls and cold emails, or maybe some like large lead gen infrastructure. And they were the first company I'm aware of that acquired customers by sliding into DMs. They said they studied cold emails and cold calls. And what's interesting about that model is Instagram at the time had none of the spam filters that like a Gmail does. So their open rates were really high on those messages. Their response rates were really high. And you know now that strategy has become more common, but they were pretty strong innovators in that space. But first off, you know that the response rates are going to come down on those over time. And you know there's no demand side retention. So you eventually kind of run through most of these people's audience. And I think similar to some other companies, The Athletic is another version of this that I recall. If your strategy is I bring in someone famous who brings in their audience, you eventually either target people who are less and less famous and then they bring in less and less of their audience or you target people who are less of a fit for your product. And there's, you know, uh, some stuff in the the New York Times article about having the target like the fire Festival guy and the Tinder swindler (laughs) to, to try to like find people who can bring in demand. And these businesses, they just always cap out hard. So my takeaway back in 2019, which I think is was still correct to this day, and I think Laura had some good ideas, is the company just needed to work hard on figuring out what a repeat purchase product looked like on the demand side. And they did try. They launched kind of like a B2B thing, similar to one of the ideas Laura was talking about. And I think they were making some progress there when the pandemic hit and the consumer thing went vertical. So they probably should have just kept going on that, but but deprioritized it. I think one other interesting takeaway for me in looking at this company is I think something that's hard for consumer founders to understand is that consumer companies are by default fads. They are by default things that can't sustain because consumers move on to things that are new. It takes an incredible amount of hard work to make them durable habits that you know can stick around for the long term. And Cameo was not able to make those investments that translated a fad, a thing that went viral into something that could be sticky beyond that period of time. One other thing I will say, which I respect, is this CEO is still grinding it out. You see with so many of these other pandemic-fueled companies, the CEO went and raised a bunch of money, sold a bunch of secondary. As soon as the pandemic's over, they're like, peace out. Let me go you know, retire to my island. And the CEO largely didn't sell a lot of secondary and, and like, you know, fuck off, like, you know, other companies did. Companies went from 400 employees to 33. And he's still in there trying to make it work. To your question, Ryan, about is there a future? I don't know. Yeah, a growth loop does not a business make. The low demand side frequency has not been addressed. And that always will kill you unless you, like you mentioned, have incredibly high AOV. 100% seller driven acquisition vehicles are not marketplaces and generally not venture scale. And you failed to change the default on like being a fad. So how do you like five years later go retroactively fix all of those? It feels like it needs to be a more aggressive pivot built on top of what's probably still a healthy-ish supply base. Certainly not as good as it was, but there probably still is a core celebrity supply they can use. But it's almost got to feel like a a pivot, not like a slight adjustment. I don't don't know what you think, Brian. You started off by... Uh, describing it as, I can't remember the exact words you used, but the recurring or the habit is more on the supply side. And so it felt more like a 
not a true marketplace, but I think you use some word in there with a tool. Oh, I SaaS like network is what I call it. Ah, or seller distributed platform would be like yeah. another. But like the value prop that you deliver to supply in a marketplace is demand. More users, orders, et cetera. The value prop you deliver in a SaaS like network is fulfillment and, and maybe efficiency, right? Like they built video tools, I'm sure at some point, right? And those are very different things that you could charge very different rates for. And generally, fulfillment is not venture scale. Okay, so that was my next question, which was, you know, you mentioned the demand side path of like figuring out the product that does have recurring behavior, which I think is actually probably way harder <laughs> than than trying to build a SaaS-like network on the supply side. But it sounds like your conclusion there is they could build that. Maybe that's a business. But that's not a venture business. Is Is that kind of what you're saying? I agree with that. And that might be okay, right? Because if you think about like the investors who did the series A, B, C, whatever, any future round this company takes is probably a recap anyway. All of those investors already know they're wiped out. So if they want to make a run at building a sustainable SaaS business, supporting celebrities and you know get cash flow positive and start to accrue profits, like I'd say more power to them, right? And And yeah, there might be some later stage investors that are upset, but like, look, you made a bad call. If you had talked to any of the three of us on this podcast, we would have told you you were making a bad call at the time. That's on you for making like a pandemic fuel that, oh, great, I'm getting a... Uh, <laughs> Is that the uh, fire alarm? Fire alarm. <laughs> yes. Oh, jeez. Oh, uh, uh, let's see. Attention. Attention. This was supposed to be yesterday. It was yesterday. That's why is it a test or is it an actual? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a test. Or fire What's the meme with the dog or whatever sitting in the room for fire? That's what this is providing me up right now. In terms of, you know, if they have a future or not, I feel like this is a moment when they've really got to look at what is the core problem they're solving? Like, forget what they think they know about what their business is or whether they're marketplace or not. Just like, what are the problems that they are set up to solve their solve? Because they are for sure solving some things today because they're making money, right? And to me, when I think about it, at least one of the things that they're meaningfully solving is accessibility. I have no way to reach out to James Vanderbeek and book him for my friend who loves Dawson's Creek. I don't actually have any friends who love Dawson's Creek, but I keep talking about it. But I don't, right? If I did, I would have no way except through something like Cameo. And I know about Cameo because I got brand awareness. So I would for sure go to Cameo and I try to figure it out. So accessibility for the layperson is definitely something that they're solving, right? So starting with that, like those kind of things, like what exactly are solving? I think they're probably also solving a little bit of the financial exchange at that moment, right? James Vanderbeek doesn't want to sit down with, you know, me and his team and figure out what it should cost for me to book him for 20 minutes. They resolve that part of it as well, right? And so coming back to those things, just what are the problems we're solving and what's the right way to go to market with those things, I think would allow them to really hone in and okay, what's the right self-serve experience for this? What is the right way for us to position ourselves as to who and what we are? Like, I think those things would follow and I think that's a really hard thing to do for a company that already has a bunch of things out there that they're maintaining and engineers with pagers on, on infrastructure that may not relate to the core problem they're actually solving, but based on what they thought they were going to be. But I think if they're going to survive, that's the kind of thing that then any other company that either missed the pivot moment or ended up down a path that's not sustainable has to do is come back to the roots 
what do we uniquely solve? And then recognize you got to forge a new path. And, and I do think there is something there if they're willing to make the change, but it's a hard one. Well, I would just note pivots are 10 times harder when you have an accrued history like Cameo. Totally. You're going to deal with hiring friction. You're going to deal with customer perception totally. friction. Like all these things take unbelievable amounts of time to, to change. I will empathize a bit here with the founder. My challenges with Cameo was even like before pandemic, it's the fundamentals of it as a marketplace just didn't feel like the pieces fit together. But I will say in those two years of pandemic fueled time, Reforge was in a semi-similar place where we also went on a growth tear and we couldn't understand where all the growth was coming from or why some of the things were growing the way they were. We could attribute some of the things, but not all of it. A bit of it was a mystery to me. And I was surrounded by a ton of voices, as Casey mentioned, that was like, lean into it, like invest in it. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, don't slow down. And in that time, I, you know, there were so many moments where I felt like I was the one wearing the crazy pants. And so we did invest in it. We did end up over-invested. We did not raise a hundred million dollar round at a, at a billion dollar valuation or those things that quite a few companies did. But it, I think the reflection that I've taken away from that time period is that if you don't understand why you're growing, you should be unbelievably hesitant to basically increase investment. The challenge is, is I actually don't think you can understand all of the reasons why you were growing. You know, we were sitting there, you know, analyzing it in the time, but there were just too many things that were unattributable in the moment to like really come down to incredibly like thoughtful analysis or understand like where the ceiling was like as we like teach and reforge and there are those things and in, in are those moments but the thing that i took away from it was you almost have to attribute what you can and and kind of focus on that and almost think about the stuff that you can attribute, like the, that it's like not even happening <laughs> because it clouds your view and it clouds your judgment of what's in control and what's not in control or what you understand about the business and what you don't understand about the business. And so I think... It was definitely a tough time for the, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, some of some of the rationalists to operate because they got pegged as pessimists in that market. I don't know. I'm I'm still processing that moment in time and that all the lessons learned and all the mistakes from it. But I will say it's it looking back on it, it was definitely uh hard to operate in time, not from a growth perspective, because that was the piece that came easy, <laughs> but, but from from other pieces around decision making. The hopium, as Casey said, I think it's hard to be the one not on the hopium when everyone else is on the hopium, right? And especially when, as you say, Brian, like there's not anything you can specifically point to to say, here's definitely definitively why y'all are actually on hopium, right? And this is a fake thing we need to shift it you know if you're kind of well i think this attribution i don't totally understand it you don't even know how to get yourself in that zone so how can you get everyone around you who's on that rocket to kind of slow down a little bit and i think to me the the pandemic was just a moment when so many people were on the same hopium at the same time and so it's a great case study for 
what do you do in moments where you have questions, but the momentum is carrying away or, or where there's an opportunity to push hard, but the, the direction isn't as clear because everybody was in that boat. And I think, you know, you came back, you started with empathy, right? Having empathy for the founder and the things that he went through. I think the fact that so many people were in, did the same exact thing at the same time as he did in just different ways speaks to the fact that it was a very hard space to operate in. I mean, there's many companies that did the exact same thing, got lots of funding during a period of time where it was temporary. And probably some people could see that and have reasons to, but there was also a lot of people with the momentum coming through. So how do you kind of stop that when your explicit purpose as a CEO and founder is to grow your business? You got people saying you're on sitting on lightning in a bottle. So I think the empathy is is right. I think the question is, how do we all kind of learn from it, learn from our own mistakes that we made and all the things we went through, and then also the things we see others do. It's always better to learn from others' mistakes when you can. And I think you've got something there. Like one thing that really stood out to me was just questioning investment on growth where you don't understand the attribution and recognizing it is a spectrum. You're never always going to know exactly, but surely in the zone where it's really hard to parse it, doubling down and tripling down feels risky. So th- those kinds of things come out. Mm. I mean, just like if, if you all were in that moment, how do you start to break down how where the growth is coming from? I mean, there's the obvious ones, which is like, uh, I can like attribute something to a direct channel, like performance and stuff. But there's always this area of growth that is not that directly attributable. And so I'm just interested what the methodology or tactics are if you were in that seat. I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to the great art of what did we ship or do and how does that relate to the outcome? I think some of the things that were pandemic related were happening asynchronously from changes businesses made or things that they shipped a new release or new functionality. It just, it kind of came async from those things coming out because again, it wasn't related to things that companies were building or doing. It was related to external forces. And so I think that's one of them. If you're in the situation where you're in arrears trying to say, hey, we're seeing this growth we didn't expect. Oh, maybe it was this or maybe it was that. I feel like that in itself is a bit of a warning signal. If you weren't, if you didn't have any way or you weren't predicting at all, hey, we're going to release this thing that's going to cause this hockey stick growth or we're going to change this thing fundamentally how we do. If you don't have anything that you can anchor in, there's some red flags in it. I also think that when you're trying to approach investment, you're trying to invest, like like looking through attribution as a way to figure out what you're going to do. I think you just have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself of if this thing is true, if the attribution is driven by this thing, we're not sure. Let's not quadruple down and assume that's right. Let's go ahead and like nudge that. Let's go ahead and like push that and see if the return continues as we expect. Like, let's continue to seek out the signals that would confirm that's true as we go and or seek out the anti-signals if it's wrong. So I think it's a not just a point in time decision, like, hey, in the moment, decide if you're going to triple double down on something or make a decision about whether or not attribution is right. I think it's a little bit of a journey where you're constantly using information to confirm or counter that original belief about where it's coming from. Yeah, I think the signal that they probably did have at the time was on the demand side about recurring behavior. It sounds like most of the growth was coming from acquisition fueled things. So it's the classic, like if you don't have retention or a recurring behavior, you don't have sustainable growth, right? And I think the thing that's easy to overestimate is how easy or how fast you can 
improve that metric or fix that problem. And it's usually whatever you have in your head, like probably multiply it by three is my take, because that was kind of like our moment is that we saw some of those signals and that's where all of our investment was going um, to the point that we, at one point, we didn't even really have a marketing team driving acquisition. All the resources were focused into building additional products around um, recurring behavior, but it is such a hard thing to move that it takes an incredible amount of time. So I guess the reverse question would be, uh, are there times where you're too conservative and you end up missing the boat or what are the right signals to throw gas on the fire? I think you're spot on about all, all those things. And I think that, you know, we're, we're definitely more in the art than science zone. But I, I think that in this, as far as like, how do you know when you've got something real and you should triple double down on it? I think really it does come down to how confident are you in a combination of things that are pushing it? Like in other words, if you really have lightning in a bottle, you've got something effective it tends to echo in a few different chambers, not just sort of one thing that's really moving. It's a few. It's There's a big problem you're trying to solve and the market is going there and no one else is solving that problem, right? So you mentioned like the kind of a rule of three, like you could maybe think of that in this framework as well, which is look, if, if you really have got something that is massively a big mover, it's probably not one piece that is going to be saying that to you. It's going to echo in multiple chambers. And so thinking through you know, be really conscriptive and really clear about what are all of the momentum drivers for this thing? Can I think of multiple if I'm really going to go hard after it? Because again, real problems echo, real opportunities do. And so I think that that I think can be part of it. Whereas like in this world with the COVID stuff, it's like, well, why would suddenly a ton of, you know, celebrities want to be putting all the time in, right? There's probably one thing there. You really start to unpack it. It's like, well, it kind of come back to COVID versus like any kind of clear market shift or any kind of clear competitive move. Like I think that might be a mitigator. Nine out of 10 companies make this problem, right? They prematurely scale, right? At least in startup land, that's like the bigger challenge. Uh, there are, are certainly examples of people who just like didn't really scale uh, when could have and perhaps missed the boat on a big opportunity. But they're, they're rare just because of all the incentives and you know, venture capital and whatnot. But the way I think about the the broader problem like you're talking about, Brian, is, and this is exactly what happened at Pinterest. So Pinterest was growing really quickly. Facebook turned off the open graph, growth stopped. I came in, they're like, hey, Casey, can you make SEO replicate the growth we're getting from Facebook? And I was like, I got you. We built this up. It started working. When it started working, I went to Ben, our CEO. I don't know if you remember this conversation, but I was like, Ben, we got this. SEO is going to continue to drive our growth for around another couple of years, easy. At that point, it is probably going to asymptote because A, we can't rank higher than number one, and two, Google likes to knock down people that are ranking number one too often. And they're building verticalized experiences that could impact us around recipes and stuff. So I'm like, by that time, we're gonna need to have paid working in order to continue to drive acquisition. In order to have paid working, we're gonna need the ads platform to have product market fit, which it does not now. So. We're actually going to like have the growth team go down in importance for a while, have the monetization team go way up in importance for a while, and that will actually un unlock new growth loops. I want to experiment with those growth loops now around paid, even though they're not going to pay back, just so we know what we've got when monetization starts to work. And we agreed to do that. We started spinning up paid acquisition because you can model these growth loops. You generally, and we teach this in the advanced growth material, right? You, like 
here's where they're likely going to asymptote. Here are the things that make them sensitive going higher, going lower. So that's the thing you want to do when you have a strong growth loop like Cameo is being like, how far does this get me? And when we start to hit the top of the S-curve, like how bad of a position am I in? Which means how much investment do I need to make now to prevent that position from happening? I think a lot of what we're talking about also is just efficient growth. And I think that's kind of the number one question on people's minds and founders' minds right now. And so OpenView Ventures, which is a VC firm that invests in a bunch of different SaaS companies, came out with their annual SaaS benchmarks report. I will give my classic disclaimer on benchmarks, but will not do my full rant that you should not use them to drive strategy or important decisions internally. I won't go deep on why, but I do think they tell an overall trend of what's happening in a category. And there were a couple interesting themes that popped out when reading through the report. The first theme, I think, which is probably no surprise to anybody, is essentially around being leaner to drive more efficient growth. And let me pull up a few of the slides here. There's a a few interesting stats in here about companies getting leaner. And some of them I was actually surprised about. The one that I was most surprised about is how much smaller some of the companies at these stages have it. So across every single size of company, the companies have gotten 30 to 50% smaller employee-wise. The the biggest one in the 5 to $20 million range, the biggest drop was companies have literally decreased at the median by 50%. So they're operating with half the employees they were two years ago. But additionally, on this front, is that companies, you know, in that same range, 5 million to 20 million, what's happened to their burn? Well, in that range, it's decreased from about 400,000 per month to about 175K, so a little bit more than 50%. But in the slightly larger ones, 20 million to 50 million decreased, the median decreased from $1.5 million per month burn down to 113K, which really kind of tells the story point of the late stage privates and how hard it is for them and how long they think this is going to like really, really last for them. But once again, the theme was getting leaner and more efficient on growth. And this is where I think it gets interesting, which is there's actually not much evidence right now that growth is getting more efficient. And actually, there's evidence that it's getting less efficient as part of this. So overall, year over year, top line growth has dropped, including the top quartile companies across the board. Median gross retention has dropped five absolute points across the board. NDR has come down even more, about 10 to 12% absolute percentage points. And of course, this all affects one of the core efficiency metrics, payback period. And that's gotten worse or stayed the same at every single size category. So this sets up an interesting question, which is like, if the whole idea is to get leaner, to get more efficient, but that second half is actually not happening, right? And in some cases, you're driving less growth and it's even less efficient. It feels like more things need to get cut or change to actually drive this efficient growth. And you're going to have to start cutting or rethinking some things that others might not be thinking of. And so I'm interested in your all takes on, on this and what additional things might need to happen to operate in this environment. Laura, we'll kick off with you. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you're calling out a lot of the the right flags here. Like, I think the easiest thing to do, I mean, 
let's say the simplest, it's not easy, but but the simplest thing to do, right, when you are in a situation where you got to like dramatically reduce your costs is just to remove things, right? Just remove things and, and do your best to figure out, okay, well, which things are driving the least revenue, like just kind of cut them. And I think what we're seeing is exactly like you said, the result of people cutting a bunch of things and then now starting to find out that, hey, those things that are driving growth, we maybe don't have those things anymore. And that it, we're in a bit of that race, right? Where we're going to see, you know, who cut kind of the right things and who just kind of cut, right? There's some momentum that you can get from previous momentums, but it runs out, right? When you stop doing it, I've seen like a lot of people, for example, reduce spending on like brand or getting word out there. And that's something that you don't feel right away. It's a great thing to cut if you really care about the next like six months, right? Because whatever you did investments before, probably going to kind of hold for a bit, right? SEO is another one, but at a certain point that bites you in the butt, right? And so I think Exactly. Like you said, the name of the game is how do you make sure that the things that you're cutting are the things that you can cut that aren't just the things that are going to allow you to kind of zombie your way for six months to a year? How do you conversely invest in the things, keep spending those precious dollars you have into things that are going to give you the returns that you expect? And so I definitely have some thoughts on a few things that companies kind of de facto invest in that I think don't actually have the return. I'm happy to kind of go into that, but also I'm curious about Casey's thoughts, hot hot takes too. I think the problem is that these metrics are correlated because all SaaS companies sell to each other and many sell on a seat (laughs) basis. So if if there are 55% fewer seats at Series C companies, then those those seats aren't available to sell. So I think what you're seeing at the company level is there's no way to be more efficient on customer acquisition, but there is a way to cut burn. And efficiency would be even worse if we didn't do it. So what you see is the growth rates on all these companies are just not good, but their burn is a lot better. So to Laura's point, they can survive, you know, for a lot longer and potentially wait for the market to be more palatable to like efficient growth. And by cutting burn and, you know, you see this advice for a lot of the boards, a lot of them are talking about getting to like no burn, getting to profitability or getting to cash flow positive. And the challenge with that is if you're cutting bone to get to profitability, then you are not in a position to grow when growth opportunities do emerge, right? So there's the, you know, David Sachs concept of default alive, which is like, we're never going to run out of cash to default investable, which is we may run out of cash eventually, but we're growing fast enough where eventually uh, an investor would want to put more money into us. And I think the earlier you are, the more likely you want to be default investable versus default alive. If you're Series C or beyond, you may just need to assume there's no more capital. And if you're growing slow, you're you're growing slow. But a lot of these founders optimizing for profitability at the early stage are just going to create these zombie companies like Laura's talking about that they won't be able to raise again to accelerate growth. They'll never be growing triple digit year over year again. But they have venture investment. It's just like kind of a weird spot to be. So... I agree they all should be cutting burn. I agree that getting massively more efficient probably is impossible when no one's buying anything in B2B, which is certainly the case. But if you overcut, when people start buying again, you can't go seize those buying opportunities. So it's just a really tricky spot to be in. All right, Laura, what's on your cut list? Oh, yeah. Let's get to the graveyard. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of just themes that I see, right? One is it's, it's a very obvious thing to turn to self-serve, right? Like one of the most clear things on your financial model is how expensive it is to deploy sales reps to close deals, right? So I don't think there's a single CFO out there that isn't looking at 
their model is seeing how expensive it is. And with all this stuff around PLG, turning to their growth team and or if it's non-existent, their their CPO and, and CMO and saying, hey, why can't we sell this stuff self-serve? I think the trick is in how do you make those things work well together? And I see a lot of companies who haven't figured out the trick of how do you leverage self-serve and sales well as a unit? So what ends up happening is companies will try to assume, right, hey, at some point, like self-service just going to kind of take over sales or, you know, hey, we'll invest in that and we'll cut this. And then they 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 kind of get ahead of themselves. The thing that drives me bananas that, that people do all the time is lead scoring. And it's one of the things that for whatever reason, people have latched on to this notion that, hey, like users will kind of, you know, click something, do this, and then they kind of get a little more likely to talk to sales and they do these other things. Now they're a little more likely and now they do, you know, they watch this webinar a little more likely and now they've reached this magical place where now they're ready to engage with sales. And instead, what I see happen is sales folks tend to not trust it when they see something come through that's like a, you know, MQL or whatever. They're like, okay, well, at what point do I have to reach out? What point is someone going to slap my wrist if I don't like send this like template email, right? And so they do. And so now you've got a problem where not only is the customer not in like potentially the right zone to talk to sales apps a lot because those signals can be very noisy. And then the rep isn't actually engaging in a way that would work anyway. And so now you just got this catch point too, where basically it's a spiral of mistrust where sales is like, marketing is not giving me enough. Like growth is not giving me enough leads. And, you know, growth marketing are saying, hey, they're not actually reaching out to the people I send or they're not doing it right. And it's this kind of blame cycle, but these things are expensive, right? And more importantly, it's a huge missed opportunity because self-serve is absolutely a way to get people motivated, get them ready to engage with sales, help you, you know, split the the people who actually are to give you money and are ready to give you money versus those you shouldn't be wasting time on. Like it's a very powerful tool if used right. So folks who are doing lead scoring, I'm sure many can relate to that that experience. And here's what I'd recommend instead and have seen be quite effective, which is underneath every lead scoring system are a few really slam dunk moments that work, right? Typically, it's not the mass of many like bits of signal. It's like a few power signals that are carrying the weight for the the campaigns that are working, right? So Somebody hits an error threshold, like they hit a limit on something that you've imposed. They have a surge in users that they've added. They're rage clicking around pricing, right? (laughs) Like these kinds of things are like signs, right? And so instead of leaning into lead square, which again is expensive operationally, expensive from a time perspective, because usually there's just a ton of stuff coming out of the machines. It takes your sales people's time. And also it's a lot of work, right? Like if marketing folks are tasked with like coming up with more and more signals, it's a lot of work to just uncover what those could be. Instead, get a sales rep in a room with your growth person or your marketing person who is running that that campaign and have them come up with a list of those key moments. What are the heavy hitting moments? And then start to manually prove those out and the ones that prove out. So really like, hey, like, 10 people hit this thing, pass them over to the friendly sales rep. They try and reach out and close them. You can also test your messaging that way. Then put in the work to operationalize and really operate more in those zones. So stuff like that, really, just like, you know, and how, how do you unpack those things in your organization? Look at what's not working, right? Lead scoring is often one of those things. Just people don't, for whatever reason, just kind of become de facto. So when it comes to, okay, how do we make the right cuts? Um, how do we make sure that we're being efficient with our growth and trying to move to self-serve. It's look at things like that and and don't just assume, hey, well, everyone's doing it. It's right. Unpack it, fix it, do something different. I got more, but that's the one that drives me the most bananas is lead scoring. 
I guess what you're saying there is just like, I think in that case, it's something that's not working and you can either go down the path of continuing to do and continuing to invest and spend dollars to try to fix it. But this one, you're just like, I'm going to rip this thing out and just do something that seems dumber, but is actually much more simple and something that the sales folks probably resonate with much more directly. Is that a fair recast? Yeah, exactly. Right. Really what it's doing, if you want to throw a bone to lead scoring, is it's taking the part of it that works, right? Typically under the hood, right? Those moments do exist, the powerhouse ones. It's just they're surrounded by the chaff of like all of this other stuff and it makes it noisy and it makes it seem less effective than it is. So you're still taking the base concept, right? Which is critical, which is that there are behaviors that customers can do that indicate readiness to talk to sales and it allows you to engage at the right time and allows you to can take those folks out of self-serve and graduate them up appropriately. But it's leaning into the parts that work and letting go of the parts that are actually causing harm to your business and costing a lot of money to operate and not giving the return that you want to see. Casey, do you have anything on your list? Well, I think this there's a broader lesson here, which is a lot of companies will look at, you know, what Laura's doing at Amplitude related to something or, you know, what you're doing at Reforge and doing something very sophisticated because it really matters and then saying, I want that. And a lot of times you have to ask the question of like, is it worth you getting sophisticated about this thing at your company? Like, is it worth you building the email and notification system that Pinterest built for your company that has like 10,000 users? It definitely is, right? And will it ever be? Sometimes the answer is no. So it's not worth getting really good at everything. It's worth getting really good at the few things that drive critical leverage for your business. And that's going to be different within even many PLG companies or, or, or B2B SaaS companies. So also another reason why benchmarks can be dangerous because like just might not be super relevant for your particular iteration. I think the other thing that's really interesting about Laura's point of like, oh, people wanting to sprinkle PLG because it's going to be more profitable. Is it? Now you're just extending the time by which you're like making revenue, material revenue, I should say, from a lot of customers. It's not like a panacea for sales is expensive. Now, for something like Eventbrite, where you make the money immediately from self-serve when they put on an event, they sell tickets. Great. We love self-serve. Like it's, you get profits a lot more quickly and the acquisition costs a lot lower. But for most PLG, it's kind of like, you know, you get some people using it. They spread it. They get enough, you know, signals that maybe they're ready for an enterprise deal. And that time period could be very long before it's a meaningful revenue driver. So. It just feels like sometimes, you know, CEOs, CFOs are grasping for straws and like, oh, this little hack of PLG will make more profitable. And it's like, well, first off, it's hard to do that super well. Two, it isn't exactly the fastest payback period. It layer cakes in a way that we really love over time. But like, if you're just starting it out, expecting it to drive your sales efficiency costs down a ton, it's probably in for a world of hurt. We talked about, about this a little bit of the, of the last episode because there is this sentiment right now of like whiplash of like of against plg and and that's exactly what we said it's like most plg initiatives are capital inefficient in the short term but can be capital efficient in the long term and i think that's the thing that people end up overestimating it's a big amount of product engine design work to re-instrument the product and the onboarding flows and the features and stuff that all the things that actually make self-serve and plg really thrive you know there, there's a governor on on how fast those things can get in place if you already don't have them laura what's number two on your list 
Wait, I got to comment on that juicy stuff because that's so much my life right now. Um, (laughs) You know, but I I think that's it, right? So when people think of PLG as a panacea, that's when the trouble starts because it is incredibly, it's an incredibly important arrow in your quiver towards efficiency, but it is not the silver bullet. You know what I mean? It's a part of a holistic strategy and folks do get into trouble when they think, hey, this is We'll invest in, you know, PLG this quarter. So we will ax this, this part of the sales team. We'll just take investment from sales. We'll pop it into this and that's going to be a perfect trade off. Literally right now, when we're modeling right now an amplitude where we just released a self serve paid plan about a month ago, we've always had self serve free, but folks had to make that big jump from free into growth. And so it was a great move from us from an again, efficiency standpoint. And also just meeting the market where they are and provide a self-serve pay plan that allows them to graduate into something that's closer to where they're at, right? Instead of having to move from free to something like twenty or thirty thousand dollars, right? They can move from free into something that's like fifty to hundred bucks a month, right? That's much more palatable. But these kinds of things take time, right? When you when you're layering something that in, you gotta think about, okay, how do we build the right self-serve experience, help them discover the features and the value in those things make sure that we're able to retain people in there and make sure that we're they're getting in and they're saving charts and finding templates and all those things. And that is not an immediate thing. And then the other thing, right, is not only are the, do the changes take time, like the work that you implement, but then the impact that these things have are lagging, right? Like if you start to build impact to, well, let's say onboarding is, is one of the best ones, like how that impact will, will show up in your model later. If you make a bunch of investments in like a Q2 to your onboarding and you say, okay, well, I've invested a bunch of people into Q1 to get butts and seats so that they can make improvements in Q2. If you're thinking, hey, well, I've invested here, I see the return when I invest, you're missing a trick because once the things get into place and is correct for onboarding, there's no retroactive benefit to that. It's not like all the people that onboarded before suddenly like conversion rates go up for them right? It's only the people after the point you've implemented. And so there's always going to be a invest time benefit to the PLG motion. And that's a very different one than the sales motion where it's, you know, you've got a rep and they're closing deals. They they literally can assign a quota and you can take it to the bank. So it's a very different motion. And so that's one of the best ways that you can help if, you know, you're in that situation where, yeah, you've got your CFO coming to you, your leaders coming to you saying, hey, like, PLG panacea, like fix all of our efficiency things and and make us lean, is to use their love language to speak back, which is, you know, a financial model for growth. Hey, look, here's here's how investment into this PLG system is going to change KPIs in the life cycle and how that's going to manifest into revenue over time. And what that really paints the picture of is that investment in year one is tends to have the highest yield in year two. And that becomes very, very clear when you can see all of the various KPIs, like onboarding, improving, you can see the revenue, the bottom line, like turn up in the following year versus the current year where the investment's happening, along with retention, all those things. So yeah, had to speak to that one because I think that that's very true. But the good news is, is that it is still a very powerful thing. I think we just get in trouble, just like we do with anything, when we try to over rotate into something or over count on it, or in the case of PLG, expect it to be something that's an immediate return when it's a longer play. Massive return. I would expect any any investment there to be of the hockey stick kind, the efficient hockey stick kind, but that hockey stick is pretty flat in the beginning. All right. Number two on your list. 
<laughs> I just want to know. You get away give me my task this. list, Laura. What am I cutting? Good. Like, I got, I got to, you know, I've got my afternoon blocked off for this. So yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm gonna run around and cause all kinds of trouble. All right. Well, here's another one. It's over rotating on personalization being a very complex. Like, okay, let's build a deep data system to understand like all of these moments about people and we're going to send everyone in our flow and everyone's going to get a personal experience. I always, whenever I see something like, Hey, personalized, you have to personalize, even like onboarding, you got to come back to earth and say, wait a minute. Yes. It is very true that self-serve is only powerful if it's relevant. It doesn't matter how great what it is you build. If it's not relevant for the person who's got to use it, it doesn't matter. Right? So yes, that's important. But the way that you sequence and approach that has got to be efficient in order to have the maximum returns. I see a lot of companies, for example, when they're trying to even just do basic things like segmentation at sign up, they'll be thinking, okay, let me implement third parties. Let's build out like quant signals. Like when they, after they sign up, we'll, we'll sniff out all these things that they do and try to like suss out what they want, what they're trying to build or, or what they might want. And that's all great. And actually to be clear, like all those things are great. And if you're at, you're at that stage, go for it. But if you're in the early zone, no, ask questions, ask them, they'll tell you, they'll tell you anything that the customer understands is valuable for them to answer. They will answer it. Asking questions like, what are you here to build? What product are you interested in? What language would you like to code in if you're targeting developers? That actually can increase your conversion and accomplish your goals of getting data in. And it's easy. You can go do it today. I'll just throw out the caveat that you can't, you know, you always, I always think of segmentation questions as good friction and bad friction. Good friction are the ones where they clearly understand the value. Bad friction are the ones where it's clearly selfish. How many people are at your company? You know, what's your budget? Like, what can you spend? You know, those things, you're not, first of all, you're not going to get accurate answers to that, but it's also going to cause friction. But the good stuff, the ones that are building relevance, you'll get good answer. And that's a great way to feed not only your data system for relevance, but it's also great to pull into your analytics tooling, right? And Amplitude, I've got to talk about Amplitude because we, <laughs> I'm there and we use it all the time. Like it allows us to be able to create filters for funnels for people, right? So we can better understand our ICPs and how our ICPs are growing in the funnel and all those things. So I think that the, the theme there is taking the right concept, like personalization and relevance and not getting ahead of your skis, right? It's really easy for teams to to really think they've got to do all of the things to get that right. No, like start really simple. You actually can cover a great deal of ground with just the basics and then allow yourself to sequence and grow into those things. I think as a general principle for me, what's on the list, and I think this is gets more complicated or it happens more often, the more people you have in the company is that I think there's oftentimes a lot of what I would frame as edge initiatives that are, when you look at them, individually or like in isolation, they look ROI positive. And oftentimes, you know, at least on the growth side, this takes the form of maybe some like really episodic marketing initiatives where you, it's like one or two people's job essentially to run this initiative. And when you look at it, it looks ROI positive by itself, but it's an edge and it actually doesn't contribute to you like one of your few core things, either core growth loops or core differentiators. And I think actually those things are often kept in plans because the investment is looked at in isolation and people don't ask the question of like, well, if we re 
purposed these resources, whether it's capital or people towards the core, does it have actually better ROI? Or actually, if we just cut these things from the equation, does it reduce coordination cost and other things that drag the core things down at the, at the end? And so it's like, it's like all these like little Thanksgiving side dishes. And when you want people to focus on the damn turkey. And I think everybody's going through 2024 Seasonal planning right references, now. Brian, you are a pro podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the references and the analogies as I talk. Sometimes they hit, sometimes they, they don't. But yeah, like everybody's kind of nibbling on the side dishes. And I'm like, you know, give me the damn turkey. I agree with that a lot. I think one other interesting thing you're seeing from the document, or at least that I noticed, a convergence between we think about as public company metrics. And, you know, Laura and I both work with public companies and private company metrics. They're starting to become the same. Revenue per employees shown on this dock at Series A. Rule of 40 is shown on this dock at Series A. I never used to see that until companies were thinking about going public. And I think that's healthy because there became like a big divide of what, between what was being rewarded for private companies and what actually public investors wanted. So seeing that converge and, and, and seeing that standardized it's a pretty interesting trend. Uh, it just seems new to me. Can we talk about AI for a second? So theme number one was companies getting leader for more efficient growth. The first part's happening. The second part's not happening yet. But the second part of this is that at the very... Is AI one of these edges, Brian? Uh, oh, okay. Well, let's... let's let, yeah. Or is it the turkey? That's a very interesting question. One of the data points that they brought up is they asked folks around their roadmap around building AI features. And it does seem like the trend right now and from the data is that a lot of companies are essentially banking on AI features to help increase their monetization growth by offering it as add-on products and upselling their existing customer base. And of course, Notion just recently launched their Q&A feature. That's part of their $8 or $10 add-on. Loom has an AI add-on. Almost every single SaaS product is basically throwing on an AI add-on and you know charging some extra amount per month. Is this actually sustainable as people move into 2024? Is that actually a good strategy? Because this feels like these features are becoming the expectation and the commoditization. So how long can you actually charge extra for these things and bank on these things as an additional growth lever? Yeah, totally. I mean, well, Notion story is interesting, right? Because there is a good little journey that led to that coming out, right? So I think it was around like a year, year and a half ago, maybe, that they came out with just a basic AI kind of tool was free that you could kind of use it to kind of just search effectively within Notion and just blew up. They saw tons of, of usage and adoption of that. And I think that was part of what got them on the zone of, hey, this is incredibly valuable. Like we should, we should monetize. And I actually think that feels like the better way to approach it. I think when you're you're not thinking of AI as the end, you're thinking of it as the means. And in their their world, right, they were able to see kind of the value come out and they're able to monetize it. Now, in terms of like whether or not that's something they're going to be able to do, like bank on, right, in the future, I think it's almost okay for folks to leverage the moment right now and monetize people, get out ahead of it and do it right. And like with anything else, if if the market expectations change, you can also, I think, adapt your model. At that point, it's more of a defensive than an offensive strategy, but I think it's okay to be pivoting in that way. And at that point, you've got lots of other input from customers about what they need and probably end up with some kind of tiering system, right? I mean, even GPT has that, right? Where like you have some amount that you get for free and then you pay for more. I think that's just like anything else, it's going to become you know more of a value staircase where 
some amounts you get for free and then you grow from there. But I, that approach, I think that they've taken where again, it's customer focus. It started for free. They got input and they moved forward. I think that's going to be the one that's going to be effective. And then from there, I think you just got to keep pivoting as you would with anything else that you monetize. I think it lasts for maybe another year. <laughs> like Here it is, it's, 12 months. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> I think it's okay to, to bet on it in 2024, but it's like you already have to be starting to think about what might be the things to bet on after that to, to continue driving growth. But I don't know. Casey, your thoughts? I had some of the, the same thoughts as Laura here, which is like, well, first off, it's nice to see in the survey that founders aren't over-rotating to AI. GTM product and burn issues were still more important to them than AI, which I, I believe is correct. And I, But I do think part of this is keeping up with the Joneses. If a bunch of new AI products are coming out and people are paying attention to that because it's a new technology, you sort of need to have AI in your, AI in your product as a defensive move. And back to our earlier conversation, if you're struggling to drive growth, one way to drive growth is to raise prices. And if there's willingness to pay now for AI features, then you'll take the real money when you can get it. And if that money isn't available 12 to 18 months from now, cool, that money might be really useful for helping my company survive, which is generally a down period for, for SaaS businesses. So I think that's totally okay. But yes, I think when you see these new technologies come out, there's a fervor around them that can last for a couple of years. And everyone's kind of like, what's my, it's like some of them are purely hype. They have nothing by them. What's my metaverse strategy? What's my web three strategy? All those just kind of go away. Right. But there's also like, what's my AI strategy or what's my internet strategy or what's my mobile strategy are like ones that turned out were important questions in the past for companies to answer. And you get a couple of years of that until it's back to like, no, I got to kind of grow the normal way. I can't just use like technology driven hype to do it. So I think it's fine to go get the money when you can. But yes, you should expect this stuff to cap hard due to competition. Do they like, oh, yeah, I've tried a bunch of AI features. It's just kind of normal or they aren't that great. Or yeah, 10 of the other SaaS tools I use have them. So why do I care about this? Yeah, I do think that will certainly happen. Yeah. Well, I think that the core question in there, right, is how should I be prioritizing the work? And if you're thinking of it through the lens of what can I monetize alone, you're missing that whole other part they're talking about, about being defensive, right? There probably is, there's going to be a a period of time where you can monetize it because you you might get ahead of it. But there's going to be a certain point of time where you will lose people aggressively if you don't have it in place. And so I think that when it comes to, hey, is this, you've got fewer chips now than I've ever had, where do I place them? If, if you're not thinking of where your market and your users are going in terms of how AI is going to make things easier for them, if you're only thinking, well, I could monetize that, but I'm going to monetize something else, you're missing the boat on, hey, yes, there is some opportunity to monetize might go away, but you, you'll end up in a situation where the folks who have gone on the monetization journey and then realize, okay, now this is brass tacks, let me pull down, they're going to at least have that defensive mode that you won't have. And so I think that whether or not it's a one-year or two-year monetization move, it's for sure a critical protection retention move in two years time. And so something that will allow you to monetize in the short term and retain in the long term sure feels like a good bet. This is why I think it's the turkey and not a side dish, which gets to my second incomplete thought, but let me throw it out there and get a gut reaction on this. I think AI technology benefits in two directions. One is it benefits when you have the scale in terms of data or distribution or other elements to really kind of layer on the technology in a pretty compelling way and and continue to power it. On the other end of the spectrum, 
because the technology is moving so fast, it benefits the folks that are able to move really fast with big, bold bets and leaps, which the big folks won't. The challenge is, is the folks that are in the middle who have neither of these things, right? And this is a lot of the middle-sized SaaS companies that are in this survey, that are in that like five to, I don't know, let's call it like $40 million ARR range. They're both not small enough to move fast enough and make big enough bets against this technology, nor do they likely have the size in the scale to have the distribution, the data, or the other mechanisms to leverage this technology. Which leads me to what do you do in that scenario? And feels like the strategy is actually combine and get big, which my guess is we'll see a bunch of that in, in the market to get some of these advantages and play into it or get really, really small and do it. But, but that was like the other thing I was thinking of, like looking at this data and seeing how these companies that are in the middle are some of the ones that are, you know, under the tightest positions right now. But let me, let me get a reaction to that. Okay, I'd add one additional thing to it, which is use AI to make you way more efficient internally if you don't have necessarily an external customer-driven approach and, you know, makes you more profitable, you know, operate with a leaner team. So you see companies, you're like, what's their AI strategy? And it's like, yeah, they just like saved 40% on like some material cost internally. You're not going to see it as a customer, but like that's also very meaningful. In my mind, there's different levels of AI that, that are ubiquitous across multiple areas are accessible by most. And then depending on who they've acquired or what they've going on are, are higher, different levels of reach. Like the other one that jumps out to me other than internal efficiency is support. I think everybody who's got some kind of support system has absolute room for AI, like 100%, right? Because frankly, efficient support models, a good chunk of what they're basically doing is doing like find stuff, right? Like things that exist within the nooks and crannies of the business, some doc over here or some blog that spells something out over there, they're they're kind of amassing it into templates and, and servicing it. Any company that's got a support function has room for AI in there. They've got data, right? Because they've got questions coming in and they have like templates going out, documents that, that live in various places that can be fed in. Like obviously there's, there's some elbow grease to make it work, but I think just leaning into what Casey said, for sure, there's some companies that are better positioned than others in, in certain areas and regards. But I think that it, there's some low-hanging fruit in there that will allow you to build up your you know, efficiencies and build up opportunities for you. And having really great support in real-time support is meaningful. I mean, how many times has someone gone through, you know, you go, go through an onboarding or you go through something and you're stuck. You're like, and I I have a basic question. I know someone's asked this before, but I guess either I do this hard work of finding this freaking thing and do this search thing that maybe isn't going to return what I need, or I open up a support ticket and wait a day or two and I'm out of my zone, right? Whereas if you can go in and you can ask like a bot, it's going to give you something in real time. So I think I think it's all about figuring out, okay, what are the things that are close enough, low enough hanging fruit that I can go after it and being honest about that, right? And then I think for that like next level that you're talking about, if you're not well positioned to do anything kind of past the basic, you have to just be paying attention. Okay, what is my competition better set up? Am I just in a market where that's always going to be higher hanging fruit? Then how do I approach that? Should I be the one that goes for it first? You have that discussion. But if your answer is that, hey, like no one in my space or very few in my space have figured that out, I think that doesn't necessarily mean that you are in a bad position. I think it's relevant to your competition. Like are the difficulties that you are having a function of your space or a function of your operating model? Do you think there's any 
parallels to what we were talking about earlier with the pandemic-fueled time in the sense that the pandemic essentially created a bunch of non-sustainable growth that people bet on and as a result got whiplashed in the other direction. Do you think there's any risk on that front of like, this is creating growth that isn't sustainable uh, over the long term? I'm going to go out with a no on that one. I mean, there's caveats in here, but I'll just say a no with exclamation because I think the pandemic in every way was temporary. Things were closed down. We were isolated. There were a lot more elements of that that were transient, whereas AI is going to be here and, and, the, and therefore the market demand for that level of simplicity can bring will be here for a long time. I think where you get that same energy, though, is in over rotation or in going too deep into it without really having a plan or knowing what to do. I think you can still see there's still some risk there of people falling in the same traps, but at least in terms of, you know, parallels and not parallels, I, I, I truly believe that if companies are not thinking about how expectations of users are fundamentally already changing and going to permanently change in terms of, you know, take support, for example, you know, 15 years ago, and someone was signing up with a self-serve checkout, like you would expect it to be like hairy and have to like manually type in your entire address and have to look things around, like fast forward, whatever, like 10 years, people expect everything to be autofilled, expect to be able to like log into PayPal. That's an expectation. It used to be a feature or something of, you know, differentiation. It is now base expected. I, I would not anticipate anything different for like something like support. Like it's always been the way that, you know, you need help. You got to, you know, maybe you try and like do some work to find something and you fire off support ticket. I do not think that users are going to be okay with that in, you know, five to 10 years with things like AI. They're going to want an immediate response that's relevant and accurate and is letting them right to the same place. So I think, I think we need to be careful about separating out what I do think is, is a, a meaningful potential issue, which is folks over-rotating AI without having a plan and just diving into it because everyone's doing it. That's real. But I do think there's going to be folks who miss the boat on this one and end up having retention problems because they don't have basic functionality these users expect and they'll be behind. Yeah. So what I'd say is in BC land, it absolutely is the new pandemic. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, they've just gone from one mania to another. Yeah. And like all of that money will get lit on fire too, or, or 99% of it. But I agree with Laura inside companies. It's already so useful, both internally and externally, that it's going to raise user experience expectations across the board, every type of company. And you need to be start at least playing around with how it does that. So you don't find yourself to your point. Like I think when OpenAI came out with ChatGPT, what I heard is that the Amazon engineers working on things like Alexa were just like, oh shit. We are multiple years behind where they are. Multiple years. Yeah. And you've seen them respond by investing in Anthropic and all these other kind of things, right? And that's, I think, a fear a lot of companies have. I also think in that middle tier layer you're talking about with SaaS, I've talked to a lot of those companies who've launched their AI check the box feature. And I'm like, why didn't you go bigger? And they're like, we are. It just takes a year to go bigger. So we need to do something now to show that we're paying attention to our customers and we have a way bigger thing coming down the line, but like, it's just not ready yet. The models aren't ready yet. The integration with our data isn't ready yet. So that's a thing that we can't necessarily see, you know, with these announcements. Yeah, I guess in that example, though, I think it, the, the question is, is how much does like having data or unique proprietary like source of information and stuff matter to the going bigger things? And I think part of my argument is like the folks in the middle probably don't have that. Yeah. In some cases, they can't be doing it based on data. They have to be doing it based on off of radically tuning the value prop 
that they're trying to deliver. Yeah. So, you know, when AI came out, I was like, okay, okay, new war, same as the old war. Build proprietary data set, use it for superior personalization of results. Great. Like I've been there. That's what we call Pinterest. The robot war is the same as uh, as our, our, our archaic war. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's certainly true, which is why incumbents are going to do quite incredibly well with AI, but it doesn't mean startups can't do incredibly well because there's a lot of cases the incumbents are attacking business model change that, sorry, the startups are attacking business model changes that incumbents can't make or just totally rethinking how some things are working. That's going to be hard for incumbents to bet big on. They just can't even organize it. So I think there's room for both types of companies to win. Maybe you're squeezed out in the middle. Or like you said, you get small or you combine, I, I think it's a, it's a good instinct. Yeah. Laura, thank you for powering through this sick. Casey, powering through on this as well. Another quick reminder, go to unsolicitedfeedback.co. You can sign up for our newsletter there where we're dropping exclusive summaries, extra YouTube videos, and sneak peek of topics. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platforming is. We greatly appreciate it. We'll see you on the next episode.